0: tortoise.
1: They almost need no introduction. Journalism's great power couple, the reporters who broke Watergate, and more than 50 years later, they're still practicing and thinking about investigative journalism. I'm talking about Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, who are here in conversation with the former BBC presenter, now podcast host, Emily Maitlis. Gentlemen, a very warm welcome. From the whole room and from me as well. Uh, Bob, Carl, I I want to start with the actual working relationship because you were in your 20s, something we've kind of forgotten now. You know, you were in your 20s, put on this story together for the first time. How did you work around each other, your practices and your peccadilloes and how you actually wanted to to work together, Carl?
2: Well, I I think the mode is distrust everything, (laughs) even each other. And we did. Yeah, and, 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 uh, but that quickly evaporated. But uh, what was uh, remarkable about that moment was we had a publisher, Kathleen Graham, owner, Mm -hmm. totally behind us, Ben Bradley and the other editors at the Washington Post. Ben would, uh, you know, the do portraits of Ben, and he had two qualities, uh, patience and impatience, and you never knew exactly what you were going to get, but it would be a version of that, and so we were in a protected, supportive, quite frankly, loving environment.
1: And we should give a a shout-out to Ben Bradley's uh, wife, Sally, who's here tonight. Um, (laughs) And I think a lot of journalists here will um, suspect, I suspect, know the feeling of being sat on in their investigative efforts by a higher power. Did you ever, on the Watergate story, have that sense? Was anyone trying to stop you push you back it sounds like you you had unfailing support right from the very Unfailing
0: support and i'm going to give one great example uh and that is about a couple months into the story a subpoena server showed up at the washington post and i got a call at my desk saying there's a guy down here with a subpoena for your notes Uh, and i said to the guard at the desk well don't let him up just make sure he stays downstairs And I called Ben Bradley because this was a result of a suit being filed in court by the Nixon people to try and get our notes. And I called Ben Bradley uh, and told him the guy was downstairs. He said, keep him there. I'm going to go talk to Catherine Graham upstairs. He got back to me five minutes later, and he said, Catherine says they're not your notes. They're her notes. And if anybody is going to go to jail, yeah. it's going to be Catherine Graham. It's still as an emotional moment as I have about those years we covered this And, and, and Bradley, Imagine ne- that. never
2: afraid to get squeeze the most out of the moment, was running around <laughs> saying, can't you see the picture of our gal, Mrs. Graham, in her limousine, pulling up to the D.C. (laughs) detention center and getting out. And that would be a picture, uh, Ben modestly said, that would run on the front page of every newspaper (laughs) in the world.
1: Because um, Nixon's press guy, Ziegler, um, famously called it what a third-rate burglary. And even when you've got all the support in the office and the support from the paper, you're pushing at a story that is complicated. How did you keep making it compelling and understandable, and saying this is front page, not seven or twelve?
2: Well, it was a conspiracy about uh, overthrowing an election by Richard Nixon and his people. And what's interesting, we wrote our, uh, chronology is so important. We wrote our stories in the f- October, uh, September, October, November of 72, Nixon won. But by and after the Senate Watergate hearings, we got an apology from Ronald Ziegler, who was the press secretary. So that was a quick move. And we're waiting
0: for Donald Trump's (laughs) apology. (laughs) How long? (laughs) Don't hold your breath.
1: There a, was there a tipping point for that? Because it, is it positioning by an editor, or is it public reaction? I mean, is there a cut-through moment when you suddenly feel, ah, oh, the public gets this, they I, get I think
0: do. there are all three elements that you're talking about, but let me describe one particular moment. Because what you saw in, in this display... Are, the most basic kind of empirical reporting, we knocked on a lot of doors. We went to the sources, starting at the bottom, working our way up from people, and we had no Democrats as sources. Our sources all virtually worked for Richard Nixon. Uh, we found a bookkeeper who kept the books that illustrated the conspiracy to spend this money, campaign contributions to undermine the election. And what we found within weeks was that Nixon's attorney general, his law partner, uh, campaign manager, John Mitchell, had controlled these secret funds that paid for this massive campaign of political espionage and sabotage to undermine the free electoral process in this country, that he controlled this fund. And we were about to write the story. And every day, Bob and I would have coffee in a little vending machine room off the newsroom floor. And I put a dime in the coffee machine that day, which is what coffee cost that, in that era. And uh, I The literally worst god-awful coffee ever made. And, and part of our meeting was designed to get our ducks in a row each day for the editors with a kind of good cop, bad cop routine. You can imagine he was not the bad cop. And on this day, I turned to Bob and I said, we're gonna write this story about John Mitchell and this secret fund. And I felt a chill literally go down my neck. And I said, this president is gonna be impeached. And I whispered it. And Bob looked at me and he said, you're right. This president is gonna be impeached. And we can never use that word impeachment in this Washington Post newsroom because somebody might think we have an agenda, and we don't, except to find out what has happened here. But here you see it all coming together, and it's at a time when our stories were not being believed by many of our colleagues in the Washington Press Corps and many people who were reading our stories.
2: I I think there should be a, a flash of modesty here. When you look back on this, the bookkeeper who handled the books of the money, Hugh Sloan, the treasurer for the Nixon committee. We also had uh, the deputy director of the FBI, Mark Felt, who was a secret source. And he was not just the deputy director of the FBI. He was in charge of the Watergate investigation. So you have those three sources, and it's not... um,
1: Did you worry that he had an agenda? Because the the understanding was that he'd been passed over for the top job after Hoover. Did you ever feel he's pushing this stuff because, you know, it's a vengeance?
2: Yes, everyone has an agenda. (laughs) And, uh, yes, we always filtered that, but we've tried to filter everything. And, again, I mean, this is the Harry Evans standard. This is why we're here. First-hand witnesses, participants, notes, documents, the kind of stuff you really have to spend a lot of time to get. But that is the pillar. That is not one of these things where somebody heard something that uh, it's one of the people who's familiar. Look, God, people are now familiar with everything. These were sources that...
1: And did everything have to be double-sourced? I mean, if, if Mark Felt told you something, did you think, well, I kind of know this? Or did you keep going back and saying, this is what I've heard, we need more evidence? From, I mean, do, do you from believe the, in double-sourcing? In the an...
0: beginning, we established the rule between ourselves, and it later became adapted by our editors as well, that we had to have at least two sources for every meaningful piece of information that we put in the paper. And it served us very well. Uh, and there were occasions uh, where Bradley and his impatience uh, would say, you know, it feels a little thin to me. Maybe we need a third source.
1: Right, right. And I guess the digital age makes it a hell of a lot easier in some ways. You know, you're not trying to find out the names of the people on, on CREEP, on the committee to re-elect the president. You can probably find this stuff, you know, much more easily online. But I guess today we're also dealing with the chance that Deep Throat is deep fake, right? And that everything that comes to you is, is not true.
2: Well, again, you have to test it. And, and, and some people think that, oh, my God, if we'd only had the Internet back in 72 and 73, we would have speeded up uh, the investigation. That's just not true. Uh, you, you uh, the, the Internet with this... Uh, Culture of impatience in speed would have been an impediment to finding out what was going on. Again, sorry to repeat, it's about Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley saying, You have the running room to work on this story. There's no time limit. Ben would sit there and he would slap a story.
0: So, do you think it is an impediment now? I don't think it's. I think it's self-inflicted wound. It's not an impediment that we have a, a journalistic culture that increasingly is infected by speed, by lack of curiosity, by not knocking on doors and going out at night and talking to people, using this great tool which is digital. We can get in from if we had Digital tools. Yeah, we would have saved some time getting an address to go to one of the burglars houses We might have saved half a day when we looked for him But we still would go to his house and too many reporters and too many news organizations today are just Looking on Google looking on the internet and not going out and knocking on the doors the old standard the great standard of Harry Evans, the great standard of Ben Bradley, the great standard that we have seen through some of these great investigative reporters that we've heard from during this program today. It's about the old methodology. It's what works. That's where we need to be. And it seems to me that's the great lesson of this conference and these two people that we've mentioned and are celebrating today.
1: And, and, Bob, you, you've also said... I mean, of course, you both said it's, it's about staying on the right side of the law. Break the rules, not the law. Uh, did, you, did you ever feel that your ethics were on trial or close to being on trial? And do you think that any of the... I mean, in the Watergate context, I, I get that sounds kind of weird. But do you think any of the practices that you used in those days... Would be outlawed now, you know. I mean, GDPR. You probably you're probably not, you know, knocking on people's doors, kind of getting yourself into people's houses. That's all become sort of more difficult,
2: right? Yeah. Yes, but but uh, we did go to grand jurors when we wrote the book. We sat down and said we went to Florida and we spent six weeks doing the first draft, and we said that we are going. We dealt with politicians, particularly Nixon and his establishment were always into denial oh no that didn't happen or you're looking at it the wrong way and we decided full disclosure ups and downs we made mistakes we you know we did some things we might not do today but we uh, one of the interesting stories is we went to grand jurors and uh, that's a questionable technique but we cleared it with our lawyer, Ed, Edward Bennett Williams. And of course, uh, when we got caught, Ed went to the judge, uh, Judge Sirica, and said, oh no, we had no idea they were doing that. They're out of control. <laughs> when he'd given us, so we decided we'd put that in all right. that the evidence, man. And uh, not the Nixon White House, but Ed Williams and his law firm. Were the ones who wanted to stop publication of all the president's men.
1: Bob, you've said that you wake up wondering what powerful people are hiding still today. What are we missing? Who are you? Who are you wondering about?
2: Well, <laughs> that's your cue. <laughs> you, you want a long list? <laughs> uh, no, you have to wonder about everything. And Carlos frequently made the point, which is so key to this. When you decide I'm going to do this story, yeah. you have to have the intellectual readiness. You're going in this direction, and all of a sudden the story is not what you expect, and you can't be surprised
0: by that. That's right. I know of no big story that I've ever worked on, including Watergate, where my preconceived notion of where it's going held. At the beginning of covering the Watergate story, I thought, and even wrote a little memo about it, it was going to go to the CIA. I think what what we're getting at here, though, is, you know, half a century ago, we were asked, what is it this kind of reporting you guys are are doing in the middle of this story? And somehow we came up with the following formulation. It's the best obtainable version of the truth. And we've used that description for half a century now. But recently, I've given a lot of thought to this, and so has Bob, and we've discussed it. And that's the corollary that the truth is not neutral. That if you look at the truth of Watergate, Richard Nixon trying to undermine the democratic process of free elections in our country, the truth of that is not neutral. It's there, it's not about saying 50% of one story on one side is to be put down in a column and 50% on the other side. The same is true of Donald Trump and his presidency and what Bob has written in his books, what all of us have done, many of us on the air about what Trump has done, the first seditious president of the United States, as we say in the 50th anniversary uh, edition of all the presidents' men. We rose not going to be
2: as sixty at the That's end of right. history, By the way,
1: do you, do
0: but you but think that lesson truth has truth been learned? Neutral.
1: I mean, in the covering of Trump in what will be presumably his twenty twenty four run, do you think that lesson has been learned by American media, by the world media, or do you think there still will be this attempt at, at double sidedism, at sort of false equivalence? I
0: I think that it's long past time, and we have gatherings like this today, that we look at the nature of what the truth and its complexity is. And it's not about centrism. It's not about leftism. It's not about rightism. It's about the best obtainable version of the truth. And I learned this covering civil rights when I was was a kid. (laughs) Lynching is not neutral. It's not about saying there is an equality on each side of Donald Trump's sedition and trying to undermine the, the election of the President of the United it,
1: States. Except the facts are now disputed. We know that a, a civil trial found Trump liable, you know, convicted guilty, it's not guilty because it's civil, but whatever, of sexual assault. Now we've had senior figures, lawyers in his party, Republicans, Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, ignoring the findings of a jury, a New York jury, saying the case is a joke and the jury is a joke. I wonder how investigative journalism even functions in an age of impunity.
2: Oh, look, it's, it's functioning. Uh, look at this conference here. I mean, it's all about aggressive reporting. Uh, I, it was 40 aggressive. years ago. Oh, uh, aggressive. And uh, 40 years ago, in the investigative unit at the Washington Post, we developed a little phrase that we actually put on some people's computers, and it was FAA. Now, that's not Federal Aviation Administration. <laughs> it's, a, it's focused... Act aggressively, and it 's an, an amalgam of what I tried to learn from Carl when we started on the Watergate story, and what Harry Evans said mm. focus you yes, you can do sometimes when you 're the editor of the paper as he was for fourteen years. you can have multiple investigations going on, but you you never let up, and you create uh, this environment of Well, let's go find out.
1: But I guess I'm saying, if Trump was Nixon. He is.
0: But Nixon resigned, right? Well, Trump is is Nixon and then some, as we say in this 50th anniversary edition. Yes, Nixon resigned. So let's look at another element that has to do with where we are as a culture, as a people. And that is at the time of, of Watergate the Republican Party, the seniors, the elders of the Republican Party on the House Judiciary Committee voted for articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon. And And there's
2: there's a moment where we're working on the second Watergate book, The Final Days, and Barry Goldwater, who was the conscience of the Republican Party, invited us up to his apartment in a high rise. And of course, Goldwater, we get in, and he gets out the whiskey and pour, pours big three tumblers of scotch. Yeah, dangerous. And um, and uh, he said, I'm going to read to you my daily diary mm-hmm. that he dictated. Mm-hmm. And the most imp- uh, one of the most important stories came from this, where Goldwater said, so he and the leader in the Republican House and the uh, leader in the Republican Senate went to see Nixon alone. Nixon had no lawyer, no aide there, and Nixon wondered, you know, okay, I'm going to be impeached, charged in the House. How am I going to do in the Senate? And I think one of the most important moments in politics in the United States is Goldwater said to Mr. President, you have five Votes mm-hmm. and one of them is not mine. Yeah. And that was the moment Nixon the 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 next yeah. announced he was resigning.
1: But that isn't going to happen uh, in this context. I, I want to play um, a clip that comes from tape phone calls that you had with Donald Trump. It later became uh, a book of transcripts. And this clip is him talking about his magnificent rapport with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Let's just have a listen.
2: The listen. CIA says about Kim Jong-un that he's cunning, crafty, but ultimately stupid. I disagree. He's cunning, he's crafty, and he's very smart. You know. Why does the CIA say that? Because they don't know, OK? Because they don't know. They have no idea. I'm the only one that knows. I'm the only one he deals with. He won't deal with anybody else. The word chemistry. You meet somebody, and you have a good chemistry. You meet a woman. In one second, you know whether or not it's all going to (laughs) happen. You know, I mean, think having uh, written about 10 presidents going back from Nixon, I, I know of no occasion when a president said, only I know. It's the president's job to make sure that other people know, and that he will get uh, a really honest assessment from people. And here, I mean, again, in these uh, interviews, nine hours, imagine, for nine months, he could call any time. My wife, Elsa, who's in the audience here, used to say, well, the phone would ring, it's Gee, it's maybe one of our daughters. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a robocall. Maybe it's Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, his his own living robocall, which is <laughs> denial that this. Oh no, no. Let's look at it this way, and so forth. And it's it's the dis- if you it, it's many hours. Look through it all. It's the description of who he is, yeah. and he cares only about himself. But
1: you, you've exposed him, uh, we've read the transcripts, and yet people's minds are made up. In a, in a post-truth world, you can say, you can find the facts, you can knock on the doors, you bring people the answers, and they say, oh, that's a witch hunt.
0: Well, this gets back to the role of journalism. First, first of all, we have a very different culture than we did at the time of Watergate. that the, Our readers and viewers were much more open to the best obtainable version of the truth then. And there's both anecdotal and polls that, that, that show the following. That so many of our news consumers, our readers and viewers, are looking for, especially in the age of the internet, are looking for information to reinforce what they already believe. They're not open to the best obtainable version of the truth, which is exactly uh, also infects the political process. If you look at what happened, here we had these courageous Republicans in the Nixon presidency who were responsible for Nixon leaving office. Here we have had two impeachments of Donald Trump, the first seditious president of the United States. He survived two impeachments, tried to really have a coup to stay in, in office, And at the same time, there's a story that I did on CNN uh, in the third year of the Trump presidency saying, and I named them, 21 senators in the Republican Party despise, hold Trump in contempt, think he is criminal, and yet will not say it aloud. And, And I knew this from aides, chiefs of staff to these senators, and finally, I said, "I'm going to write this story." And I named all 21 of them. It was one denial, which was a lie. <laughs> and, and then I got a call from a former Republican senator. a couple of days later, who said, "Carl, the number is really closer to 40." <laughs> but it's not funny. Because it describes where we are. And one of the things I think we need to start to do much more in our reporting is to report on what people in the country are looking at and believing and why they are thinking as they do. And because what you did
2: in that story was so important. I mean, this is the classic they're saying in public this, but they really you have believe. To do it. Now, you a, use the word post truth if I may channel Harry Evans for a moment, he would con- post truth don't let it happen yeah we cannot let it happen and i think uh, I think listening to all these people here you know people people are fighting exactly that, and the the you know post truth uh OK, you but, know, Harry's coming down and, and I mean, he's uh, taking away our chairs and microphones and saying, do not. But everyone this
0: here to agrees. me really, try, try an ultimate example of what we've heard today that has been so courageous, so wonderful. And that has been so much testimony from journalists who are here about the coverage of the war in Ukraine. But let's look for a moment at another element that what we do and go back to Harry, go back to Catherine Graham, go back to Ben Bradley. What is the most important thing in many ways we do? We decide what is news. That is huge as reporters and as editors. And so what happened at the time of the invasion of Crimea eight, nine years ago? there was this terrible, horrible rape of Crimea. And a couple weeks after that, and we covered the beginning of it with, uh, you know, Russians and camouflage uh, invading the country, and then we kind of dropped it. And what became the biggest story for the next year, especially on cable news? How much did we hear about what was going on in Ukraine? We heard about the disappearance of the Malaysian airliner day after day after day after day on cable news. Where was it? We've got submarines looking for it. Where the hell were the stories about Putin and Ukraine? It is a terrible failure on our part. What is news? the,
1: The person who has probably shaped the news business here and in the U.S., In the last 60 years the most, is not a journalist, it's a businessman. It's Rupert Murdoch. And I wonder what you think that legacy will be now. Because we've seen the Dominion settlement, we've seen the lies it's exposed, and we've seen Tucker Carlson reimagine himself now uh, as a whistleblower um, on his own channel or kitchen or whatever. And This is what you're up against. You might not like the the phrase or the word post-truth, but you're still dealing with a network that talks to a lot of
2: Americans. Yes, but I mean, uh, the obsession with Tucker Carlson, and oh, he had 3.3 million viewers every night. And that I was think the BBC the,
1: News at Ten gets doubled up. So you know, we're uh, used to big audiences here. <laughs>
2: okay, well, good. Yeah. But, but uh, what we we don't understand or we don't focus on is it's the same 3.3 million people yeah. watching this and inhaling the fumes of it. And uh, again, but it's uh, enough to know, elect I, a president, I, I'm, I'm right? with Carl on this. You listen to all of the people talking today and what they're working at. It's not, how can we get a story in a week? It's, how can we get the story and we have, again, the environment of dig responsibly, don't give up, and uh, there's no time limit. See, that's the the real ugliness well, of the internet. It's. It's instant. It's right away. Is so-and-so, is Trump up or is he down? Yeah. We've I, got to look at, which we've tried to do, what did he do as president?
1: There's a story that's um, bubbling away now, and it seems not to have quite broken through the, the public consciousness in America, which is Clarence Thomas. And extraordinary tales of corruption. I mean, I think it is... Bluntly. Justice
0: and the justice for sale.
1: Right. Justice for sale. And nobody seems to police the Supreme Court.
2: Well, but they, you know, they're their own bubble. Many years ago, wrote a book uh, with Scott Armstrong about that. And it is the biggest bubble in Washington, no question. But what what happened? uh, Bob Costa and I went out into the wilderness to get those text messages between Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, and Mark Meadows, Trump's chief, and you know what they were doing? I mean, it's right there. They were plotting to overturn the election. The the wife of a Supreme Court Justice. um, That is a story that's so important. My newspaper, ProPublica, has done just great reporting, and they will not let up, and this is exactly what we're trying to talk about today. They set the bar for themselves, and there's no one in these news organizations saying, oh, well, who cares? Clarence Thomas was getting million dollars of free travel and holidays from a very wealthy man. People are... Hey, wait a minute. What's next? Mm. It's just like Watergate. What's next?
1: We're going to end uh, in a moment. Just before we do, I'm not going to reveal my source, but I was told that you bumped into Boris Johnson and he told you something about Brexit. Bob,
2: what was it? Well, it was pessimistic. It was, hey, it's not working (laughs) out. And I I said, you know, is this somebody wearing a Boris Johnson mask? No, it was Boris Johnson himself. I think uh, the realism comes. But what is really it, uh, happened to us today? If I I, I, I can tell say this story. Emily, yeah, that um, Carl and I got a message from Alexei Navalny, mm-hmm. the politician who has been jailed in what Russia, the yeah. anti-corruption who who Putin
0: tried uh, to poison.
2: Yes, and. Uh, and that didn't work, so now they've just put him in uh, solitary confinement for two years. But the message was, this is, uh, really gripped us that he has just read our books, all the president's Amazing. men, and the final days. And uh, we looked at that and we
0: said, wait a minute. Look, this is why we're here. This message was from someone who understands what can and is happening to democracy in many parts of the world today, and where fascism and where authoritarianism and where death is a daily part of of being in opposition. And so we got this extraordinary message today that he had read these two books that we had written. But let's think about what the lesson that we're all here for today is. And it's what was recognized by Alexei Navalny in that message, and the fact that it came to us today in this gathering. And we're sitting
2: here, and, and we looked at each other, yeah. and um, you know this is, again, having really good source to find out that something like that happened and what just in our our mind compared the system there which has never been democracy and the freedom we have in the united states and in the free world to act actually operate and that is a daily liberation you say i wake up and say, you know, what are they, the bastards hiding? Uh, but, you know, you can't do that yeah. in Russia, in lots of countries. And so we better bask in and realize that we've been liberated to actually explore what happens. And we better work on that liberation every day.
1: Amen to that. What a wonderful note to end on. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Truth Tellers from Tortoise Media in partnership with the Sahari Evans Global Summit in Investigative Journalism, Tina Brown Media, Reuters, and Durham University. Tortoise is a newsroom dedicated to slow news. And to support investigative journalism, you can join Tortoise as a member by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash slowdown. Tortoise.